0: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
1: Hey, before our interview with Dr. Amir Vajou, who is just an amazing healthcare strategist, health communications and behavioral specialist and scientist, I want you to listen to a message from Senator Dr. Bill Frist has a new podcast that I'd like you to take a listen to. It's called A Second Opinion. You can find it at asecondopinionpodcast.com.
2: Today I'd like to share some thoughts about something each one of us is feeling, and that's anxiety. As we track the spread of COVID-19 and the novel coronavirus, change is coming rapidly right now. It's hard to keep up with the latest news, the most up-to-date numbers, and the most recent projections. Add to that isolation that comes with distancing measures. And it's not surprising that many of us are experiencing heightened emotions right now. And a good deal of worry and anxiety. By definition, anxiety is feelings of worry, nervousness, and unease that typically result from an imminent event or some sort of uncertain outcome. From a medical standpoint, most anxiety arises from an excessive activation of the brain mechanism, underlying fear, and the evolutionary important fight-or-flight response. Severe or constant stress can produce a hyperactive anxiety reaction, and where those thoughts and responses persist and even continue after the threat has passed. While our nation's current COVID-19 situation has a lot of real uncertainty, there are some very real, tangible ways we can mitigate our anxiety and actively improve our mental health. In fact, social scientists tell us that during times of stress and difficulty, we can actually grow or increase individual and family resilience, personal growth, social connectedness, and meaning in life. Now that's easy to say, but how do we actually do it? Here are some strategies that we know work. First, we must share our stories and socially connect, even while we're physically distancing ourselves. You see, when we share our stories of how COVID-19 is impacting our lives and how we're working to cope, we have the sense that we are not alone in our struggles and we also learn new strategies to make each day easier. Thanks to technology, and yes, for those of us who are a little older, it can be a little hard the first time we use this technology, but thanks to technology, we can schedule intentional interaction with friends and family over video. It sounds strange at first, but go ahead and plan a lunch on FaceTime. Watch Netflix with five of your friends tonight on Zoom. Get creative and don't forget to connect with grandparents. Second, practice gratitude. You know, we're so aware of all the things that we're missing and feel out of place. But science proves that purposefully spending time each day thinking of things we are thankful for can focus and rewire our minds towards growth and resilience and fulfillment. Third, create a schedule. Write it down or type it up. Routine has been shown to provide comfort and reduces anxiety. Kids and adults alike function best with structure. Plan to exercise for both your body's health and to release endorphins that reproducibly trigger positive, optimistic feelings and reduce stress. Keep consistent bedtimes and wake-up times so you get enough sleep. Finally, be very thoughtful about the sources of information you're subscribing to. Too much news and opinion can create a great deal of internal noise and clutter and increase your feelings of helplessness. Keep informed by checking in with a few sources of news that you trust, but resist the temptation to constantly consume updates and opinions and perspectives. Literally, it is bad for your health. These are unprecedented times. Every day we're hearing news about the impact of COVID-19 and how it's shaping our places of work of worship, childcare, health systems, economies, and communities, but we are not helpless bystanders. By using these strategies for improved mental health, we are investing in our growth and our resilience and that of our families in ways that will serve us well far after this crisis is over. Please keep your questions coming to this platform and I'll do my best to get the latest, most trusted information to video at A Second Opinion with Bill Frist. Visit asecondopinionpodcast.com, that's asecondopinionpodcast.com.
1: Pharmacy Podcast Nation, welcome back to the Pharmacy Podcast. One of the most committed aspects of our publication has been care collaboration between physician and pharmacists. More importantly, the collaboration between those two critical roles in healthcare during a pandemic and how those team members are ensuring assuring our public has good information, um, has guidance around uh, the pandemic, as well as understanding uh, where to access additional care and uh, follow up in the therapies that are that are given and prescribed by uh, physicians across the nation, as well, as well as across the world. And the world, that is important for today's conversation because I have a special international guest today, Dr. Amir Varyu. Um, welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. Thanks, Dad. And welcome, everyone. So I want to give some reference to your background, um, Dr. Schmidt Patel, or I should say future pharmacist, Dr. Schmidt Patel, this rock star in our, in-, in our industry. He's a healthcare innovator and digital medicine um, expert in his, his young stage, um, Forbes 30 Under 30 uh, Scholar Award winner. Uh, co-founder of the millennial pharma leader which by the way is a podcast on the pharmacy podcast network and i and through his recommendation and talking with you i realized um the the depth of understanding that you have in this pandemic so just give us some background so that our listeners know a little bit about you
0: yeah thank you for that and really shout out to smith who put us together Uh, i share your enthusiasm towards him So with that said, I'm I'm trained as a medical scientist. I did my MD and PhD back in Hungary. And uh, ever since then, I've been looking for opportunities to kind of put science out there for a wider network and wider audiences. I've always been interested in communicating science and basically translating science. And how can we translate and communicate science in a clear and understandable way towards the general public and where's people who really need that science. So after I did my MD and PhD, I joined a Fulbright scholar program. Um, I spent a year at Harvard Medical School doing molecular research and got in touch with this uh, extremely exciting field of, of, of health communication professionals whom I was, uh, I was given an opportunity to join later on. So I did an MPA, a Master of Public Health and Health Communication at Columbia University. And I have been working as a health communication specialist and a behavior change strategist at FCB Health New York ever since I graduated. So that's my, uh, that's my short and sweet background. So when it comes to the pandemic, uh, I, I'm really, really focusing on not just the molecular aspects of it and then how the virus is changing and what what potential therapies are there, but I'm very, very, very interested in how the population is reacting to all the news, to all the information that is out there and, and basically what what kind of behaviors and what kind of decisions the general public makes when facing this pandemic.
1: That's interesting because that is the tip of the spear in combating the pandemic Is is taking guidance from our scientists and from our researchers and from our physicians and being able to pull that into population health to ensure that the public understands what is real and what is political talk what is uh, fake news what is um, you know just uh, you know rumor and and rumor and speculation um, aren't good for, uh, overall healthcare, especially in the regions where there seems to be more of it than than other regions, and even state differentials in in our in our United States, the way that one governor may um, may run a state versus another, and it's concerning. But I also wonder how much of it in the balance between what is real and what isn't, how much of it will give an opportunity for. Uh, people like yourself to inject uh, research and, and, re- and inject um, opinionated research that that is based on science that can give us insights into the future of this uh, virus and and is it changing? I mean is it is it different in Europe than it is in the United States? Is it in in versus Australia, and, and are we seeing different versions, um, you know, coming about? And that that kind of um, that kind of science is, is very interesting to me, and as I sure it would be to to our listeners.
0: Yeah, Todd, I think I think those are those are like excellent points, and and there are, there are a couple of questions hidden in those questions, right? I think the whole world is looking at an abundance of information that is emerging basically every single second. There are hundreds of studies out there on COVID appearing every single day. And the whole world is looking at the same amount of evidence, and and everyone sees something different in that amount of evidence. But but there are are certain pillars that seem to be clear, and there are certain communication pillars that are communicated by the WHO and by agencies that diffuse knowledge around the world and kind of advise governments on on what what to communicate, and uh, advise public health professionals on what to communicate. Uh, the statewide and the and the in, interstate nuances that you mentioned, those are you know again there are many many uh, clarifications for that. But one one of the reasons that that happens is that the same evidence gets kind of percolated through different um, uh, different kind of a uh, policy um, environment and and uh, and different policy regulations and and often different value choices and and legislators and and decision makers have to really have to balance lots and lots of information, lots of, uh, uh, lots of, kind of different factors uh, that will go into a decision whether, what to recommend in terms of uh, COVID and when facing the COVID pandemic. So with that said, that has always been the case when the new pandemic would rise. What is really new here uh, in our era, and especially at the, at the beginning of the 21st century, is uh, this new surge of uh, fake information and misinformation, so to say, um, which is which is really really ta- uh, taking taking a huge tide, and uh, when saying that, I also want to reference that uh, it's not the first time in history that that fake information and misinformation is out there. It's just the way that it's amplified through social media and and other outlets is that is that that is unprecedented, and that is in itself a huge public health challenge. So I think there are at least two things to fight here. One is of course the virus itself, and as many others. Um, you know kind of formulated this before me there is also a communication crisis and which is which is intertwined with a huge amount of misinformation and the very very strong misinformation campaign
1: including announcements that come out uh in the news which are enormous in scope such as the claim that um russia has approved a COVID 19 vaccine and in, in a time span where the rest of the scientific community immediately disnau- denounced the certification as kind of a premature or even inappropriate uh, claim. And that in of itself was uh, a big news um, point within even the last 48 hours.
0: True. True. Absolutely. It, it's, these are really, really exciting times. Um, also very scary from time to time. So news like that pop up every single day, and uh, and you know if we're if we're touching vaccines right now, that's uh, that's that's in itself a very important questions to a cool question to address, because um, vaccine hesitancy has been on the rise for the last couple of years now. Um, it's again a historical wave that has been amplified by social media. But what is really, uh, really, really worrisome for me is that the current COVID environment does not really help counteract that trend, right? Because there's a bunch of information out there on COVID, there's lots and lots of ambiguities in, in people's minds around COVID, and people are even questioning hard facts and facts that all scientists agree on. And in that environment, introducing a new vaccine and the idea of a new vaccine uh, can, can be actually scarier to a lot of people than, than it would be in a, uh, in a kind of a peaceful situation. So what I'm really worried about is that we're heading towards actually finding that vaccine and, and coming out with the first vaccine, uh, but then having to face a huge opposition on people's behalf. There are polls out there um, already and, there, and the uh, CUNY uh, School of Public Health is, is doing a great job in, in New York uh, in terms of pulling those polls and, and, and it's around 50%, um, according to some of these studies, it's around 50% of the people that, that would actually say that they would vaccinate their kids with the vaccine if, if it came out tomorrow, which is low. It's a really low number. And again, there are a couple of, a couple of things to mention here. We don't know yet whether COVID is here to stay forever, whether it's going to become seasonal, whether it is going to become something similar to the flu, which we have every single season and flares up and then goes down. Uh, But what we have been seeing in in the field of public health is that vaccine hesitancy um, against vaccines that are season that are against seasonal uh, microbes, such as the flu vaccine. Um, are higher. The vaccine had the level of vaccine hesitancy is much higher. So um, the rate of vac- vaccination is already very low for a vaccine, uh, which is against a microbe that might only hit us seasonally. So you're you're at a point where you're already starting with a low level of probable vaccination, and now there's all this misinformation and all this uncertainty around COVID, which kind of undermines the further projection of those numbers. So I'm really really worried that that. Hesitancy will be a um, number one priority that we'll, we'll need to face once the vaccine is out, and that we have to work again uh, towards that right now, even before the vaccine is out.
1: So, in talking with physicians and pharmacists since April, where we've had an attention around updates surrounding the pandemic, I have heard the similar and consistent talk about prevention. And hand washing, and cognizance of your environment, and protecting your kids, and protecting yourself in the world of masks. And you know, when I'm I'm a seatbelt wearer. Uh, when I get in my car, I naturally um, put my seatbelt on. And. There's a state law in the state of Pennsylvania in the United States, as there are most states, where it's it's part of the law of that state that you have to wear a seatbelt. But that's not why I wear it. I wear it because if I'm in an auto accident, I've been told based on statistics that I have a better chance of survival if I wear that seatbelt. So I, I think of masks the same way. a matter of fact, um, Dr. Varyu, I I really think that um, mask wearing could have been used in the past in the United States when we had serious flu outbreaks. And if if we would have exercised practices with masks, say 10, 15 years ago, then today's uh, mask controversy per se, for lack of a better term, um, wouldn't be a controversy. It would be like, hey, when we go into an influx of the flu season, we know that between the months of September and uh, let's say January, everybody in the public uh, starts wearing a mask once in a while. And we know that it can help to prevent, not 100%, but definitely cut down on the opportunity for you to contract um, you know, these particles that are floating around or someone sneezes on a handrail or, or something that could help to contract that based on hand washing and, and masks and things. But what, what's your opinion? I mean, there's so many physicians and pharmacists I've talked to that are the eye rollers that are saying, goodness gracious, why is this even an issue? But why do you think it's such a, a big deal?
0: I think you just asked the million-dollar question, Todd. I, uh, there are so, so many important things in that single story that you just told. Um, and there are many layers to answer this question. And I, I'm like, spoiler alert, I'm not going to give you a definite answer to why this is all happening. But let's start with the word prevention, right? I think it's really worth mentioning that all over the world, people are so much worse when it comes to healthcare prevention, prevention of diseases in general. People are just so... Uh, much worse off when it comes to prevention than when it comes to treatment. Um, and when I say they're, they're, they're worse off, what I mean by that is that we're not thinking about it. Something, Some distant risk that is not even in front of our eyes is never going to be as important as, as an immediate threat and an immediate danger. And the latter is when a disease occurs. The former is when a disease is, but we're ten 10 years ahead of a disease. If I'm ten years ahead of a heart attack, then am I not going to eat another Big Mac? Well, definitely, I'm, I'm going to eat it because it's just it's just so far away uh, from from my sense of, um, of kind of my sense of presence. So I think let's let's start it at that. That is one of the reasons. That is one of kind of the behavioral reasons why we we are paying way less attention to uh, to prevention than to therapy and and to remedies uh, in general. And that is reflected in the financial structure, and the way that we finance healthcare, uh, the amount of money that that it's not just the U.S. but generally around the world, the amount of money that we channel into prevention versus uh, we channel into into um, into the the medical side. Right and and in reality, those two fields—the uh, field of prevention and, and the field of and the medical field—should be working together, and so that one would work for for, for another, and and that's that, that would be the way to maximize saving number of lives. Well, let's start there. So I think first of all, there's there's this fundamental um, kind of misunderstanding of, of what prevention should look like, and 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 there there needs to be uh, awareness raised. Um, so that's that's point number one. Point number two is um, how we sense risk in general, because the what, what you told about what you told us about um, wearing a seatbelt, I, I think well, it, it may be just me, but what what I heard is it, what I heard through your story is that it's not just about statistics about your own risk; it's also maybe about you know the risk uh, that that those uh, who love you and those who you love bear in that situation, right? What happens with your family? What happens with your loved ones if you if you get in an accident and you're not wearing the seat belt? So I think, um, I think there are a couple of things here that we can translate to the current COVID situation. So first of all, there is a sense of risk that everyone feels when it comes to the virus. And that sense of risk is traditionally translated in numbers such as the lethality, late or lethality rate of a disease, which is what's the chance for me to actually die of this disease if I get the disease, very simply put and we've been we've known for months that for COVID it's probably around one percent the initial numbers were were, were higher understandably um, based on initial studies and initial measurements but we now nowadays think that it can be can be probably lower around 0.3 0.5 percent there are many many estimates out there but they're still within the same ballpark let's say that it's only one in a hundred chance for me if I, get the, if I get the COVID, there's one in a hundred chance that I end up dying. Is that a high risk? Well, everyone will answer that question differently, right? Um, some people will say that's not a high risk because I know that it's mainly the elderly and it's mainly the immunocompromised who are at risk, right? And even if it's one in a hundred, um, I I doubt that I, as a young, healthy individual, will be one of that one of that uh, very rare one of those very rare cases which actually die. So that's one thing that people can say. But if the story stops there, then we're not actually sensing the right risk, in my opinion. What should happen here in this case, and this is way harder, and this this needs a lot more thinking, is to rewire our thinking about how we think about risk uh, within the COVID pandemic. So, in a classic sense, it's absolutely righteous to talk about individual risk, a risk of death, uh, for instance. That's a very strong marker. But here with COVID, that's that's probably the wrong number to look at. And let me let me give you uh, some some thoughts around why, why, why that's the case. Um, it's, it's a number that we traditionally look at. If you, if you think about the Ebola uh, outbreak a couple of years ago, everyone was very, very scared because there, there was a 50% chance of dying in Ebola. Of course, there was no need uh, to explain to people how bad this disease could get. And there was no need to get into other details and other numbers. Everyone was just super scared, even before Ebola uh, got to the North American continent. But with COVID, it's a little bit different. 1% is a low number. However, if you look at a different number, the case is very different. How about if you look at hospitalization rates? And by hospitalization rate in this scenario, um, I mean, what is the likelihood of someone who gets COVID? What is the likelihood of them getting into hospital? And that number is not 1%. That number is somewhere between 10 and 20 depending on the region you're looking at. In China, it was around 19. At the early stages in the US, it was around 13. Now, many states, like in Arizona, it seems it's around 10%, but that is a substantially higher number. Even if you just think about one in six people or one in seven people who who get COVID, even if just one sixth of those people end up in hospital, you can see how quickly hospital beds can be filled up only with COVID patients. We're not talking about death. We're not talking about these patients dying. We're way earlier than that. This doesn't have to happen. What I'm trying to say is that if we fill up Hospitals, And if we fill, fill up critical beds and hospitals with COVID patients, then at that point, when that critical fill happens, from then on, there, there's no meaning in talking about fatality and, and lethality rates of the disease, because that's going to change. All those rates, the way we calculate them, they require a functioning healthcare system. If we flood the healthcare system with patients who will occupy hospital beds, then that system is not functional anymore. And that's what, what New York, New York uh, City got the border off too. And that's, that's what Northern, Northern Italy experienced. That is exactly the case. The problem, the real problem, or well, it's hard to weigh problems here, but I would, I would argue that the real problem was not the 1% lethality rate of the disease. The real problem was hospitals getting crammed with patients and where doctors really had to make decisions with which patient to put on uh, on an ICU bed, which, uh, which is a completely different scenario. And understanding that and how this system level cavalcade will filter down to the level of the individual is really hard. And communications understandably don't focus on that because it's a really hard message to convey. But what I'm seeing and what I'm reading from people's reactions is that there are a lot of people out there who don't understand what the fuss is about uh, around COVID. If it's a disease that only kills the elderly and the immunocompromised, then even then it's just 1%, then what are we really talking about? Well, I think it's the hospitalization what we're really talking about.
1: Exactly. And what's what's terrifying to me is what people don't realize. So when I'm on Facebook, as much as I'm a pro-freedom-oriented person, I really try to simplify the entire mask discussion and debate, which shouldn't be a debate in the first place as preventative practice as you would wash your hands during a serious flu season. And I've, I've interchanged the whole COVID-19 with the, the expression, a serious flu season. You don't want to get a serious flu or ammonia, for example. Dr. Sachin Yendi, who's an epidemiologist and critical care physician at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, uh, UPMC, Um, his team reported in a study in 2019, for example, that people hospitalized with ammonia have a higher risk of heart disease, four times higher for the rest of their life, even if you get it when you're young, than someone who hasn't uh, contracted ammonia. And similar long-term uh, implications are are in play when we're talking about contracting COVID nineteen. Would you kind of dig into that a little bit for our listeners?
0: Oh, absolutely. And this is this is a very um, a very exciting and very, very unknown um, field here that we're tapping absolutely. into. Or what are the what are the long term consequences? So in the in the kind of the previous section we, we discussed what 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 are those consequences that we already know that might happen. But there are many, many others who we, we don't really have the hard data to, um, to put a, put a, put a um, strong marker out there. So what about thrombosis? What about microvascular complications? What about neurological complications? Uh, what, what, what are some of those long-term complications that we might not even know at this point yet? Because um, it's, it's an absolutely valid point. And is it worth risking that? You know, even and, and, and do these do these consequences actually develop um, even if patients don't develop symptoms with COVID? That's another big question we don't know. So of course there are many many um, unknown factors in here, but I think there's one very important thing that that relates to this um, that relates to uh, people facing scientific ambiguity and people facing differing uh, opinions online. And that's, that's this concept of health literacy, uh, which I, I, I'm really passionate about because uh, my daily work um, designing healthcare campaigns and designing patient support programs, I, I really face this problem that the general public's health literacy levels are, are, are pretty low around the world. And, and what, what we mean by health literacy generally is, is that ability to understand obtain and act upon health-related information properly. And those levels, the health literacy levels, just like normal literacy levels, are measurable. And they're increasingly being measured um, around the world. And for, for instance, in the US, um, just to give you some, some ballpark here, in the US, we estimate that um, around one third of the population has basic or below basic health literacy levels. About health of the population, has intermediate level um, health literacy levels, which is really um, a really, um, nerve-wracking an number. And that, that seems to be the case all around the world with, with small fluctuations. But this just generally reflects the ability of an average individual um, to interact with health-related information. And we can even go further further and and, and deeper than that. We can go back to actual literacy levels, because the average literacy level in the U.S. is close to the eighth grade level, right? Um, About about, um, the same number for Medicare patients is around the sixth grade level. So um, a person who reads below sixth grade level would not be able to fully cope with um, Harry Potter, for instance. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's, th- th- those are just some, some staggering numbers. Like, th- th- this, this is the baseline. This is the baseline that when, th- when misinformation comes in and health literacy should be that wall that couldn't be crossed uh, by, by misinformation. Uh, what I like to say is that, that health literacy should work as, as some sort of herd immunity against misinformation in a, in, a, in, a, in a population. But that's very aspirational. Right now that's not happening we have generally intermediate slash mainly low health literacy levels around the world. And that's when misinformation comes in and misinformation meets that very, very low barrier. And that's when things get 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 shared on Facebook. And and that's when misinformation gets not only shared, but translated into two hundred and fifty languages within a day and spread across the Internet it's it's just it's just crazy like we, we're not prepared we're not prepared for this amount of misinformation so when it comes to wearing a, the, the wearing a mask or we're or not wearing a mask debate like imagine imagine an average healthcare consumer facing that debate on a basic to to below basic health literacy level and trying to figure out the truth that's not easy. We're not trained to do this. No one is trained to do this, actually. We don't, we generally don't teach health literacy around the world, right? And I'm sorry for those few exceptions where we, where we do, okay? I know there are some, some really good initiatives in, in, in Northern Europe, there are some in the US, but generally, it's not just not a part of our everyday uh, practice to teach, thing, uh, to, to teach in school, right? So I, I think that's that's a fundamental problem problem. And and this is where somewhat you know healthcare professionals come in, because healthcare professionals do have a role in in um, in somewhat combating that the low level of health literacy, or at least catering to this low level of health literacy, or at the very least, considering that most of their patients will be below basic or basic health literate patients.
1: I always put things in the um, analogy of the falling domino. You stack up dominoes and you you hit one and it hits the next and so on and so forth. And I think which, what, you're, what you're saying is that based on the bad information and the lack of health literacy, we come back to the simplicity of spreading a virus, uh, spreading a disease, uh, spreading the pandemic. And uh, the public not realizing the implications of even surviving the contraction of of COVID-19. In in reading studies, because of being a fan of pharmacy, I want to be semi-educated, in, in understanding so that I can ask the right questions to be able to extract the true data from some of the most brilliant minds in pharmacy, in following people on Twitter who I trust, on Facebook, on on LinkedIn, um, on the Wall Street Journal, on the Post Gazette, the, the people that are writing, their names and backgrounds sometimes are more important to me than the context, it's in the, in the content itself, so that when I'm making reference to it, on my own social media that I feel like it's being backed up by, um, you know, evidence based and and understanding the implications of, of getting, you know, we're talking about risk and we're talking about what happens, you know, if you contract. Well, some people uh, are, are getting it and in, in, in recover, recovering quickly and uh, they seem to have uh, very low, um, you know, outcomes that that are, are causing other issues in their gut or in their, in their bloodstream, bacteria, uh, parts of their immune system, um, everything seems fine. Um, there, there have been studies, I've read a recent one from, uh, from this Stanford University School of Medicine, which shows a, a wide difference from one patient to the next in, in contracting and in getting uh, infected With COVID-19 and then the follow up in the study that they did with about 70 healthy people, uh, they found uh, 16 that were extremely serious cases that have so-called recovered are now um, having tremendous difficulty with, with complete breathing ability. Um, in in their lungs and and other things that are are being impacted, including uh, kidneys and then something doctor that I found really interesting was something that they're terming um, uh, delirium um, based on the the covid nineteen experience and and how that's going to impact behavioral health so you are absolutely correct we don't know the outcome of of where we're beginning with this pandemic and if it's eradicated then you know uh then then thank the stars and 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 we'll move forward but i think there's going to be domino effect that's going to come from COVID 19 that we haven't mapped out yet so that's that's the concern for me so when we ask today's episode what is the risk what's the real risk well part of the answer is is unknown I agree with that, and
0: um, I love your domino parallel here. Uh, On a brighter side, I just like to interject that uh, we do see some positive effects of the domino as well. So while I agree that there will be lots and lots of unknown consequences, they're really hard to to forecast uh, right now. Uh, some of the ways through which our, our, our lives are changing uh, can be actually beneficial to long-term mental health. Um, and I know, I know this, is, this is probably contradictory to what, what many people uh, will say or, or, or what, what many have, uh, have already you know, spoken about because there, there are major concerns around uh, social isolation, especially with the elderly that is increasing under COVID with all the restrictions and with all the safety measures. That's absolutely valid. Uh, what i 'm hoping is that there will be processes that at least may counteract those negative effects like think about the new type of work life balance that 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 some of us may um, uh, may experience and of course i 'm speaking from from a point of privilege when I say work life balance because many have lost their jobs but you know, once those jobs uh, will recover and, and, and once yeah, we we fought this this pandemic off and and we're ready to move on. Then some some of the learnings that that we acquire during this time, I'm really hopeful that they will stay with us. Like how to build a better work-life balance, for instance. Um, you know how to spend um, how to spend your 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 time uh, your more efficiently on work while you're at home. How to multi multitask more efficiently. Uh, how to kind of intertwine work and work in life in a in a more productive and and they and they kind of emotionally and maybe mentally more more stable way. I'm really hopeful that there will be learnings and there will be best practices coming out of this, uh, this pandemic. And that's just one of the positive dominoes that I'm, I'm at least somewhat hopeful that's gonna happen. The other thing that I, I always hope for, and again, this is very aspirational and um, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but this is, is exactly going back to this idea of how we sense risk and how we think of, uh, of our interconnectedness. And, and how we kind of step away from this isolated view that this pandemic is only about me and my, my, my personal surroundings. And, and how do we expand that view and how do we start thinking about whole, the whole system and the whole population, the whole society that we live in? And how do we go beyond that individual sense of risk? And if that really happens, and if just, uh, if just a few people start thinking differently during the next flu, um, uh, flu outbreak, for instance, which will come, like a flu is not going to stop. Um, you know, maybe maybe we will reach higher vaccination rates against the flu in the next season, and maybe we will be able to save uh, a few more of the elderly who are at risk of of, of dying uh, of dying of a uh, flu complications, right? And something we haven't talked about is this comparison of COVID with flu, which is a very very mainstream thing to do when it when it comes to you know COVID. Um, hesitancy and 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 when, when it comes to, uh, you know, speaking against COVID regulations is that it's just the flu, it's just like the flu and we know how to live with the flu and it's just, it's, it's just going as well. Do we really know how to live with the flu? Like, are we okay with the way that we're living with the flu? Are we okay with the notion uh, in our mind that I could have vaccinated myself and maybe I could have stopped the spread the of 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 the flu to someone who may be more susceptible to dying from the flu than myself like like are we really that good at, at at living together with the flu so maybe if we start asking some of those questions like i'm really hopeful that there will be some some positive domino effects that appear
1: absolutely It's been um, a refreshing need on the Pharmacy Podcast Network to get another episode out of an evidence based perspective and the philosophy mind uh, forward thinking um, of you and and what you present to us. I am going to include some links to your LinkedIn um, in our show notes and some reference uh, to our materials today, including the Stafford. Uh, study that was uh, was done. So if you are listening and you want some additional reference, please pay attention to our show notes. But um, we want to thank you for taking the time. A shout out to Dr. Patel Smith. Thank you so much for referencing Dr. Vayu and and your work. And and I invite you to come back. If there is something that you believe would be pertinent and important to get out to pharmacists, I want this to be an open invitation to you to come back to the Pharmacy Podcast and reach out to our 70 to 80,000 listeners uh, every 30 days. And we just started a brand new podcast with a chemist and pharmacist uh, who works for Harrods as their chief pharmacist. Within uh, the scope there in in London. So, we're really trying to expand our our reach and information and support and advocacy for uh, how pharmacists are playing an extended role in healthcare. So, we're very excited um, to have had you today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure
1: you're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. We are an advocate for the pharmacist professional. If you have any questions, if you have any ideas, if you'd like to be part of this publication, please reach out to us at publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. That's publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. You can find us on all social media at Pharmacy Podcast. And we thank you for listening to today's program.